One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Cool fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello and welcome, history friends, patrons all, to episode 82 of the 30 Years' War. The last proper episode of this Whopper series. Thanks so much for joining me, and thanks so much for supporting this show as well, because since we started this series basically four-ish years ago, it's been a wild ride. We've gone from 1618 to 1648. Maybe it didn't require 82 episodes, but I think that the Thirty Years' War deserved this level of coverage, and I'm happy that, as far as I can tell, it's the most in-depth coverage in audio format that this conflict has ever gotten. So, thank you for joining me for it. Normally I'd open the episode by saying thanks to someone on Patreon, but instead of thanking someone individually... I'll just thank you all, because really, I've only gotten this far thanks to you and your support, and it kind of boggles the mind that in a few months I'll be handing in the dissertation, the big 100,000-word behemoth that's been eating my life over the last four years, but yeah, we're nearly done, and it's kind of poetic that just as we're nearly finished the PhD, we're also finishing up this series. As far as what my plans are afterwards, I'll drop those details on you in a later episode, because I'm still kind of refining them, and you know me making these big promises and having these big plans, and then a few months or weeks later I kind of have to fess up and say it can't happen, so rather than disappointing you, I'm just going to wait a little while until things are a bit clearer, because at the moment, yeah, it's kind of phd.com and pretty much nothing else. But that's just a little bit about me. Let's just go back to the nice, comforting, warm embrace of the Thirty Years' War. Last time, we examined several pressing issues which crowded the peacemakers in the final months of the war. Bringing our narrative up to August 1648, we noted that disaster had occurred in France as the Fronde erupted into the streets of Paris and would soon engulf the nation. This was bad, but equally bad for Mazarin was the fact that the war with Spain continued to bring few particularly favourable returns, which made peace with the emperor more and more attractive. Mazarin wouldn't be able to sink the entirety of the Habsburgs, as Cardinal Richelieu had wanted to do, but he would be able to benefit from French gains along the Rhine, and he could focus his attentions where they were needed most. Elsewhere, of course, the Swedes had found a way to make their voices heard, and the German estates once again pitched in to ensure that awkward negotiations were avoided and fait accomplis were presented. By and large, the Imperial and Bavarian armies had begun to break apart thanks to low morale and dwindling resources. Yes, after so many decades of paying for armies at a ridiculous size, it finally seemed unsustainable and impossible. 
This made the Emperor's strategic situation akin to an emergency. It was vital the Swedes didn't break into the hereditary lands, thus breaking the back of the Habsburg dynasty as they did so. But the Swedes were already there in those lands, because in midsummer 1648, an army under the command of Johann Königsmark broke into Bohemia, and on the night of the 25th of July, they made use of deception to break into Prague itself. The war, poetically enough, had returned to that splendid city, 30 years since Habsburg officials had first been defenestrated from the windows of its town hall. Would the end of the war be so poetic? Well, let's find out, as for the final time, I take you to 1648. Before I properly get into the episode, though, I should just address the fact that if you hear a bit of an echo, sorry about that, but we have been moving some things around in our usual study-slash-recording studio to the extent that I now have bookshelves. Isn't that nice? But they're empty, so all those piles upon piles of books that I have yet to move onto them will probably explain why there's a bit of an echo, so sorry about that. But if you are interested in seeing the ludicrously extensive library that I have, join the Facebook group or follow us on Twitter, because we'll be probably posting some photos there. Seriously, I only really realised how many books I had when I actually had to put them on shelves, so it's kind of ridiculous. But anyway, enough about that, enough about me. Back to the history. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Can he make peace without asking me? Does he not owe all his victories to me? Have I not shot down the Swedish king? Have I not conquered Saxony? Have I not earned my reputation in Denmark? How would the battle on White Mountain have ended without me? What glory have I not earned in the battle with the Grand Turk? Fie upon you, get out of my sight, for I get mortally vexed when I fly into a real rage. Overpowered by hot and boiling wrath and savage ire, 
I am capable of seizing the spire of St. Stephen's Cathedral in Vienna and bending it down so hard that the whole world will turn upside down like a skittle ball. This is an extract from a comedy drama penned by contemporary Silesian poet Andreas Griffius. Griffius clearly had an eye for the dramatic and the sarcastic, but he was also sensitive enough to the circumstances of the late 1640s to delay the official release of this play. It wouldn't be performed until the early 1660s. Perhaps Griffius believed it was too dangerous to poke fun at those peacemakers while the peace was developing. But Griffius needn't have worried too much, because by August 1648, the final steps towards peace were being taken, and there could be no going back. After several false starts, the endurance of some incredibly time-consuming protocols, and navigation through some very bloated egos, it seemed that the Emperor and his foes would at last be brought conclusively to the peace table. And according to one account, there was enough tragic comedy within the real-life negotiations at Westphalia. A message from the Emperor urging his delegates to agree to the peace terms had arrived. Unfortunately, though, his delegates mislaid the cipher which would decode the message, and so the document which was to end the sufferings of the last 30 years of carnage was unread, while the Emperor's agents were searching frantically for the cipher key. Whether that's true or not, what's not in doubt is that the Emperor had instructed his agents to agree to the peace terms. After all, by now the French, Swedes and Imperials had fulfilled their goals. Sweden had acquired the sum of 5 million thalers for the payment of its troops, and the Pomeranian knot had been cut in its favour. France had its rights in Alsace recognised, and both approved of the religious settlement. So it was that on the 6th of August 1648, Imperial delegates visited Johann Oxenstierna's quarters and proceeded to read the preliminary agreements out loud. Sweden couldn't sign the peace treaty yet, Oxenstierna reminded them, because they were compelled to make peace alongside France. However, he did go as far to consummate the agreement with a handshake, and he promised not to demand any alterations to the treaty as it now stood. It was just as well Oxenstierna had made such a commitment, because many miles away from this scene at Osnabrück, Swedish soldiers were converging on Prague. Johann Christoph von Königsmark, a senior Swedish commander who had fought under the Emperor and the Elector of Brandenburg in the past, here orchestrated a brilliant piece of deception, which facilitated a horrendous scene. Prague was destined to be the city where the Thirty Years' War both erupted and concluded and no shortage of bloody unrest was to be found in each case. Thanks to the help of a disgruntled imperial soldier, over the night of the 25th to 26th of July, 1648, Königsmark's 3,000 soldiers broke into the western portion of Prague. The River Moldau and its Charles Bridge now separated Königsmark from the rest of the city, including its prosperous new town district, but he was content to let his soldiers loose in the portions of the city he did control. And so, over the last few days of July 1648, we're told that more than 200 citizens were killed in Prague by rampaging Swedes. There was a sense among the soldiery that this was their last true chance to plunder the enemy's wares, and they didn't hold back. 
priceless art collections and libraries, some gathered by the late Emperor Rudolf II in the beginning of the 17th century, others even older, fell into their hands and were shipped home to Sweden, where the would-be art connoisseur Queen Christina eagerly awaited their arrival. Konigsmark managed to squeeze some seven million thalers out of the city, but try as he might, he couldn't get across the bridge and seize the most prosperous part of it, Newtown. But help was at hand. Over the next month, additional reinforcements of Swedes arrived, drawn like moths to a flame, all of them desperate to seize some measure of wealth before the war and this free-for-all was brought to an end. Charles Gustav, the Queen's cousin and heir in Sweden, brought 6,000 men and 8,000 other men came from Saxony. A siege of what remained of Prague was attempted, but imperial reinforcements were en route. These 3,500 men made use of the River Moldau to arrive within the new town before the Swedes, and they put steel into the resilient citizens of Prague, who were determined to outlast the invader by basically holding on until the peace was finally signed. Konigsmark and Charles Gustav were thus challenged in this race against time to seize all of Prague before their license to plunder expired with the peace treaty. On the 11th of October, it seemed that the besiegers might break through, but the resistance held out. After handing Prague over in 1620, 1631 and 1632, it seemed this epicentre of the Thirty Years' War had declared no more. No more harm, no more plunder, and no more soldiers. Well, against all these odds, its citizens and soldiers were successful. News of peace arrived in the city on the 5th of November, and although the Swedes tried to break in anyway over the next few days, imperial reinforcements came to turf them out, and the Swedish efforts to acquire more plunder were in vain. It had been an incredibly close-run thing, but the official end of the Thirty Years' War had saved Prague from further destruction. There was something really poetic about the return of the war to its source in its final moments, three decades after it had first erupted from the windows of Hradshin Castle and escaped its Pandora's box. As Imperial soldiers filed into Bohemia and the Swedes began their lumbering journey northwards, it must have been difficult for all involved to believe that their war was actually over. We might imagine there would be rejoicing and reveling in the camps, but the peace didn't greet everyone as good news. I was born in war, wailed a female camp follower in Olmutz in Moravia. I have no home, no country and no friends. War is all my wealth and now whither shall I go? As a stark contrast was the behaviour of the town's burghers, who gathered for a thanksgiving service in the remnants of their church in Prague to sing, At thy rebuke they fled, at the voice of thy thunder they hasted away, they go up by the mountains, they go down by the valleys unto the place which thou hast founded for them, thou hast set a bound that they may not pass over, that they turn not again to cover the earth. And you can thank me for not actually trying to sing that hymn, but... Beneath the proclamations, the innumerable fears abounded that, in fact, the soldiers might return to cover the earth again after all. How, one might ask, were the hundreds of thousands of men in Swedish or Imperial service to be demobilised? Could these disgruntled Germans, who might have missed their opportunity to enrich themselves, 
really be expected to take matters into their own hands now and seize what they could for themselves? What if the satisfaction Sweden had acquired for its soldiers proved insufficient? And what of Charles Gustav, the cousin of the Swedish Queen? He had been appointed to succeed Field Marshal Wrangel, and although it was not yet known why he had been appointed, in other words, to increase his profile and thus make Queen Christina's abdication easier as a result, it was known that he had come in search of glory, and he had arrived at Prague when only weeks remained in the war. In 1654, to fast forward somewhat, this Charles Gustav would succeed Queen Christina as King Charles X of Sweden, and thereafter he would make his name in a momentous war with all of his neighbours. Hint hint, Swedish deluges. There's an episode on that if you're interested. But as matters stood in autumn 1648, everyone seemed to feel nervous at the intentions of this young, ambitious and warlike prince, who undoubtedly had much to prove. But Charles Gustav was not present at Westphalia, and it was here that the most important decisions were being taken. Notwithstanding the gentleman's agreement between the imperial and Swedish delegates on the 6th of August, solidified by Johann Oxenstierna's handshake, there remained some wrinkles to iron out before the final signatures could be ascribed to the peace treaties. Evidently, since these signatures were not given until the evening of the 24th of October, you can imagine that between those two months, there was a lot of time remaining for quarrels to emerge and feelings to be hurt. There was plenty for the peacemakers to find issue with, be it with protocol or when clarifying previous statements, but few wished to genuinely jeopardise the negotiations. For Cardinal Mazarin, indeed, it seemed the situation in France was more than grave enough to jeopardise the negotiations without her delegates at Westphalia also acting out. Throughout August 1648, the Cardinal had urged the revolting Parlement in Paris to reconsider its position, to refrain from opposing the tax-farming practices, which had been established for more than 12 years, and to consider the necessities of the war in light of their opposition. This was, as we said, the prelude to the Fronde, which would erupt later in the month, and although it could not yet be known just how serious the Fronde would be, on the 24th of August, Mazarin was already confessing to a peer that this small domestic war, as he put it, was keeping him very busy. He had high hopes for French arms applying additional pressure on the enemy, but recent news, like the informal peace between Sweden and the Emperor on the 6th of August, had troubled him. Two days later, when he received news of Condé's triumph at the Battle of Lens, Cardinal Mazarin overstepped and then provoked the very conflict he feared. The consequences were grave, but while he had overstated its impact, this French victory at the Battle of Lens was a crucial last stab in the heart of imperial resilience. This was Leopold William's third defeat in a row as governor of the Spanish Netherlands, and it virtually guaranteed the emperor would have to make peace without Spain. It also persuaded the imperialist states in the empire to motor on ahead without the emperor's delegate, Isaac Volmar, who waited in Munster for the French delegate to meet with him, only to be disappointed. In fact, Abel Servian, the only French plenipotentiary of some importance who remained to represent France, had stayed in Osnabrück while the German estates negotiated with him in private. Just as they had done several times in recent memory, 
these estates revolted against the slow-moving procedures of their emperor's representatives and took matters into their own hands. The estates committed to make peace without Spain, who they had little love for in any case, and by the 15th of September, France and the Holy Roman Empire had signed their final agreement. The next day, the Swedes followed suit. Now all that was needed was the emperor's signature for the whole process to be official. Emperor Ferdinand III didn't want to exclude Spain from the peace treaty, but recent events on the battlefield had only served to highlight his vulnerability. His brother was a proven loser in warfare, and Prague was on its last legs. To save against any worse disasters, Ferdinand decided to ignore the Spanish warnings, and he sent orders on the 30th of September to the effect that he would sign on the dotted line. Interestingly, these peacemakers in Westphalia had already made plans by now to ignore their emperor if he proved recalcitrant. The estates had presented their fate accompli and had outmaneuvered the emperor so that if he refused to consent, he would be left all alone with an eroded support base to continue the war against France somehow. There was no prospect of the estates supporting their emperor now. They had decided firmly on peace from the smallest principality to the largest electorate, and they would not continue this ruinous war for the sake of Spain. When Isaac Volmar received these instructions from the emperor to give way and bow to the inevitable, it was then that he announced his inability to sign to the suspicious estates. This seemed to them very much like some last-minute delaying tactic, but the evidence does exist to support Volmar's claims. In the 11th hour, the prickly matter of Alsace was raised because Spain owned some claim to it, according to the old Oney Treaty of 1617. The estates overcame this issue with the incredible concession that until Spain relinquished its claim upon the region, France could keep the indemnity it was meant to pay the Habsburgs for it. This placed a serious onus upon imperial negotiators to persuade the Spanish to give way, and if they couldn't manage it, they would be poorer as a result, but the peace negotiations would not be allowed to suffer. Predictably, Isaac Volmar issued his objections, but by this point the estates were ignoring him, and he, as well as the Habsburgs generally, had lost all control of the negotiations, as the historian Derek Croxton said. The final weeks of the war were a remarkable blur of final complaints and quarrels over precedence. After all their work, getting the peace over the finish line, the estates were curiously aloof from the moment when the final signatures were ascribed. There were sound technical reasons for this. The morass of representatives which the estates had sent to Westphalia had worked diligently, but many potentates in Germany had neglected to send any representatives or had left before the end of the process for some reason. It was thus important not to make the legitimacy of the peace contingent on the signature of every power, college, body, institution, any major or minor city-state or any other actor within the empire. A halfway home was then arrived at, where 15 of the most important estates provided their signatures and additional estates were allowed to affix their names for the sake of prestige, but no more than those 15 individuals would be required to make the treaty valid. Even the actual day of peacemaking itself, the 24th of October, didn't proceed smoothly. 
so obsessed with the issues of precedence were these peacemakers, they couldn't appear in public to sign as Volmar had wanted. Instead, the process was carried out in private, just as the preceding years of negotiations had been. The Swedes granted a significant concession and agreed to abandon Osnabrück to sign with their friends and foes together in Munster. This certainly gave the peace treaty the appearance of unity, but it didn't mean that the Swedes were beginning to see things the French way. The most delicate arrangements and ridiculous procedures had to be prepared to avoid any semblance of superiority. Copies of the treaty were signed simultaneously, and one's dignity was carefully guarded. Swapping between different rooms, affixing their signatures, the necessary copies of the treaty were produced by 9pm, and when this was learned, the 70-gun salute was fired, announcing that the treaties of Osnabrück and Münster had been signed, and that the Thirty Years' War was officially over. Be it known to each and everyone it may concern in whatever way, that after the disputes and internal troubles which began many years ago in the Roman Empire and spread to such an extent that they drew in not only all Germany, but also several neighbouring kingdoms, especially Sweden and France, thereby causing a long and bitter war. Consequently, the plenipotentiary envoys of both sides gathered at the appointed place and time, and agreed in the presence of, and with the acceptance and consent of the electors, princes and estates of the Holy Roman Empire, to the honour of God and the salvation of Christendom, the following terms of peace and friendship. This was the opening preamble of the Treaty of Osnabrück, and it was copied into the Treaty of Munster, in addition to the following point, Article 1, on the subject of universal peace, a somewhat hollow claim, as we know, considering the continuation of the Franco-Spanish War, but a significant declaration nonetheless. Article 1 read, That there be a Christian universal and perpetual peace, and a true and sincere friendship and amity between his sacred imperial majesty, the House of Austria, and all his allies and adherents, and the heirs and successors of each and everyone in them, chiefly the Catholic King of Spain and the electors, princes and estates of the empire on the one side, and her sacred royal majesty, the kingdom of Sweden, her allies and adherents, and the heirs and successors of each of them, especially his most Christian majesty of France, and the relevant electors, princes and estates of the empire on the other side, and that this peace shall be observed and cultivated sincerely and seriously, so that each party promotes the other's benefit, honour and advantage, and that a true neighbourliness, sincere peace and genuine friendship grows afresh and flourishes between the Roman Empire and the Kingdom of Sweden. These were high-minded goals indeed, but was it truly realistic to suppose that the end of war could bring about the transformation of relations? Could enemies become allies so quickly? The Spanish and Dutch had managed the transition with an impressive degree of pragmatism and finesse, but both those powers had active interests in repairing their relationship and resuming their natural relations as mutually beneficial trading partners after 80 years of war. There was no indication that between the Emperor and France, or the Emperor and Sweden, the story would be similar, and indeed it was hard to imagine that France would never again threaten the equilibrium of Germany, especially with a young king, growing in age and ambition, and soon to come into his majority. The same was arguably true of Sweden, where Charles X was destined to ascend. 
with these two new monarchs at the helm and soldiers having gone through a extensive war and needing something to do, could Germany truly be safe from their individual quests for glory and renown? Well, perhaps not. But there was certainly enough interest at stake aside from the French or Swedish variety to make peace appear attractive. It proved impossible, ultimately, to end three decades of war instantaneously through the mere signatures on treaties. This wasn't due to misplaced bitterness, necessarily, or because France and Sweden wanted to maintain pressure and wrest additional concessions. By and large, the Franco-Swedish alliance had proved incredibly lucrative for the two partners. France had pushed its borders to the Rhine with the acquisition of Alsace, in addition to Metz, Toul, Verdun and Philipsburg. The emperor had been separated from his Spanish cousin, which surely meant that the war with Spain would be easier. Sweden had gained extensive rights over Pomerania and the formerly Danish-owned bishoprics of Bremen and Verden, while her soldiery would be paid not from the Swedish taxpayer, but by the empire's organisation. Five million thalers would be sent from the estates, and Sweden could husband its resources and rebuild its shattered finances after 18 years, that's right, 18 years, of continuous conflict. Still, there seemed some apprehension over ratifying and implementing the terms of the peace treaties. So long as trust was in short supply, it was very difficult for either side to relinquish the only source of power they possessed, their armies, and to allow goodwill and mutual exhaustion to do its work instead. Indeed, the ending of the war didn't result in the armies being discarded, although according to Article 16 of the Treaty of Osnabrück, the armies were supposed to be demobilised within two months, that prediction proved far too optimistic to be practical. It's understandable why the French armies weren't demobilised. These soldiers were to be redirected against Spain, where Mazarin intended they would be used to wrest additional victories and concessions, and for the people of France, of course, this meant that the gloom of war and impossible taxation would have to be endured indefinitely, a prospect they blamed on the foreign cardinal, who it was said was disdaining peace for his own personal gain. But what of the soldiers under the imperial or Swedish command? What need was there for these men to remain at arms? A combination of factors, really, including hesitation on the part of commanders, distrust of one's enemies, and the complications arising from suddenly releasing tens of thousands of men from their service into civilian life, all served to delay the demobilization process. A quick survey of events following the signing of the peace seemed to suggest that no one was in a particular hurry. The first conference, which the commanders hosted, took place in Prague on the 17th of November 1648, but the topic of demobilisation was less pressing than the question of how these soldiers were to be continually supplied. In all, 150,000 men were under arms across the empire, be they Swedes, French, Hessians, Bavarians, Imperials or others, and until it could be certain that the peace treaties were ratified and their terms implemented, the soldiers would not be released from their service. For years, the citizens had been terrorised by the soldier, and now it was the statesman who urgently worked to find some solution so that the soldier would not terrorise him. The debate dragged on well into the following year, even as compromises over where the armies were to be quartered was reached and limited restitution of church land took place. In mid-February 1649, the treaties were ratified, 
but this did little to resolve matters. Instead, it would require yet another gathering of potentates, and it was decided that the potentates should meet at Nuremberg to work through the remaining disputes, including Charles Gustav's newfound passion for the Palatine cause, which could only worry the Imperials. Demobilization remained the order of the day, however, and the terms of the recent peace treaties were upheld and respected. Amidst a worsening situation in France, Mazarin found that his leverage declined with the increasing focus on Spain and the retreat from German territory. Grave warnings about the fate of his regime were received in January 1649, when King Charles I of Britain was executed, ushering in a new phase of the revolution sweeping across the British Isles, which was soon to place the realm in Cromwell's hands. Further afield in Poland, the beginnings of the rupture, which were to end in utter destruction and ruin, were being felt amidst the Cossack Revolt, led by Bogdan Komelnitsky. Notwithstanding these ill omens, the need was sufficient to open this unofficial sequel to the Westphalian negotiations, and all gathered at Nuremberg in November 1649. They would not leave this city until the summer of 1651. On the 25th of October, 1648, Munster's town council had authorised a thanksgiving service to take place, followed by the secretary's journey through the streets. As he went through the town, accompanied by a military drummer and eight trumpeters, the arrival of peace was proclaimed and details were provided. Considering the unceasing activity which followed this proclamation, one could surely argue that any celebrations which marked the end of the Thirty Years' War in October 1648 might seem premature. Yet, just as the citizen wanted to welcome the end of the war, so too must the historian mark the end point of this series of wars somewhere. At the very least, while a list of issues in need of resolution remained legion in October 1648, the hostilities which had ruined the Holy Roman Empire for three decades had finally come to an end. Germany was under threat of foreign invaders and was at war with its neighbours no longer. Citizens and soldiers alike would no longer be forced to pick a side and face ruin for the consequences. The great quest between God or the devil was mercifully over, for now, however imperfectly it had ended. To many contemporaries, this was just cause indeed for celebration. Well, you made it. This right here has been the last episode of the 30 Years War series. I can hardly believe we're actually finished, but we do have one more conclusion episode to come where we'll wrap up more of these details, more of the details of the war, but also details of where I intend to go from here, and also because so many people have been asking what the story is with that 30 Years War book I did, and where you can get it if you want to get it. All those details will be shared in due course. But for now, guys, I will take my leave. This has been the 30 Years War episode 82. You're a wonderful history friend, and I'll be seeing you all soon.
When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.